This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for November 10th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up on this week's show, we hear from freelance journalist Olga Dobrovitova about what's happening with Russian science since the start of the Ukraine war over 500 days ago, and why so many researchers have left Russia. Next, implanted electronics. Researcher Jacob Robinson talks about how to improve electronics for inside the body. From harvesting power to transmitting data, there's a lot to do. Now we're going to hear from our freelancer, Olga Dobrovitova, about the dilemma Russian scientists face, whether to stay in the country or leave, more than 500 days after the start of the war in Ukraine. Did you leave Russia because of what was going on with the war in Ukraine? Yeah, so I was in the middle of changing jobs in February, and I was going to join an international project, and it became really clear, really fast, that that's not going to work. So yeah, pretty much after the war started on February 24th, I started working with my editors and colleagues at Science to help with the coverage of the war itself, the events in Ukraine, but also the protests from Russian scientists who were among the first groups to actually show their support for Ukraine and the first to protest against the war with an open letter that very quickly went into the thousands of people who have signed it. You're now in France and you're still covering Russia, Ukraine, all kinds of issues. And a lot has changed in Russia since February 2022 for the people that live there, for the research community. You know, we're seeing suspended collaborations. We see sanctions, blocks on Russian banks. You know, the business of doing science has become much harder. So you wrote about the state of Russian science 500 days, a little bit more than 500 days after the country's invasion of Ukraine. It's obviously not the biggest problem for the country, but it's still a big problem for scientists. I think it's important to preface this whole discussion with Just saying that a lot of scientists actually think that 
the state of Russian science amid the war should be the least of their concerns. They want the war to end. They're protesting that. Yeah. They worry about their colleagues and friends in Ukraine and elsewhere. So I've actually heard this several times over the course of the, my reporting. People were sort of, well, you know, we're not really focusing on this. But obviously the war has had a big impact on Russian science across fields for the physical sciences, for life sciences. It has been mostly about the impact of supplies, losing access to collaborations. Whereas for social sciences and humanities, it's mostly damage inflicted by the Russian state, by the repression and the persecution. But I think the fundamental issue that has emerged a little more than in a year and a half, I'd say, is the split in the community which is on the surface geographical. A lot of scientists have left Russia. A lot of younger and potentially more interested in academic mobility, people like that have almost all left. I'd say it's one of the biggest groups to have left Russia. But I think the split goes a bit deeper than that. And I'd say that this story overall is ultimately about the choices that people make, scientists make whether they want to stay or go elsewhere, whether they want to continue their work. And I think the division goes deeper because it's really hard to understand and to actually, it's really hard to say what should happen to Russian science, what is happening to Russian science, right? So it's, it's not a question with a very, very straightforward answer. What are you seeing when you talk to researchers that have made the decision to leave? What are some of their motivations? So for most Russian scientists who left, I'd say the big reason was the fundamental disagreement with the state and they could no longer tolerate the government that is invading another country, but also really oppressing the citizens, right? Because most of those scientists immediately went to protest in the street and they were detained. One of the first things the Russian government did very early in the invasion was they criminalized even calling it a war. So when I say war in the story, that is actually illegal in Russia. It's not a climate where you want to live, where you want to work. And actually a few people I've talked to have had experience working outside Russia. And some of them actually came back to Russia at some point over the last 20 years. And now they're saying, well, I essentially made a bet, right? I took the risk of coming back to Russia, even though I was concerned that the political climate was souring a bit, but I, I still held out hope. But now there's no hope. I just, I have to leave. I think that's fundamentally, that's the biggest reason. Right. Any concerns about, you know, being able to do science in Russia, being able to collaborate with colleagues abroad. I think those are all secondary. Fundamentally, it's the, it's the deep opposition to what the government is doing. Yeah, you talk a little bit about a comparison between the brain drain in the 90s when people left after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But that, again, the motivations are just so much different now. Yeah. One of the people in the story actually spells it out quite nicely because he says that in the 90s, people went sort of in search for a better life. They went to other countries to find professional success or just, you know, tolerable working conditions, funding, because that was the biggest problem in the 90s. There was no support from the state, from the government. But these days, people are running from Russia. They're leaving Russia basically to go wherever they could. Most of these people have landed in temporary positions. They're not sure they will stay where they are. So it's, it's mostly about actually leaving Russia 
rather than going anywhere specifically. One other important difference between this wave of brain drain and the one in the 90s is Russian scientists nowadays, especially the ones interested in leaving and ones who left, are much more integrated into the global community. Most of them, if not all, speak enough English or other languages. They know how to publish in international journals. That makes it much easier to move. Do we know how many people, uh, particularly scientists, have left Russia? So that is obviously the biggest question on everyone's minds, right? How many scientists have left the scale of this brain drain? And it's really hard to estimate because it's a sensitive topic. Nobody in the Russian government likes to talk about it. And the scientists and policy experts who do talk about it, sometimes they tend to inflate it a bit, I'd say, for their own purposes. There's no hard data, but there are sort of proxies that you could use to get a sense of what the scale might be. One of the proxies is looking at open source software developers. They're arguably more mobile than scientists, but still, I'd say maybe it's on par with other highly qualified professionals. According to the analysis that we refer to in the story, up to a third of open source software developers have actually left Russia. Another way to look at the potential scale of the brain drain would be to look at the intention, right? How many people want to leave Russia? And there was an industry survey in 2022, which asked scientists how the, the war, how that affected their intention to leave Russia. A whole third of respondents in that, you know, several thousand strong survey said it either somewhat or strongly increased their intention to leave. And if you look at younger people, at scientists under 39, that figure was slightly over 50%. It's a different question whether they can leave and whether they have left, but the intention, of course, is still there, is very much there. You also, for the story, spoke with people who stayed in Russia and continue to try to be researchers, although I don't know how easy it is these days. You know, what were some of the reasons they said that they preferred to stay or did they have to stay? So first of all, I should say that Many of those people actually either declined to be interviewed or spoke to me anonymously because you can get informed on, you can get reported for activities that disparage the Russian state or the Russian army. One of the experts in the story talks about these repressions, uh, these persecutions being expressly random, right? So there's no way of telling in advance whether something will cause you trouble. I think that's actually. That must have been the reason why many of those people declined to be interviewed. But the ones that did agree spoke mostly of the need to stay, to keep teaching younger scientists, keep teaching students good practices, ethical ways of doing science, actually teaching them good things. If everyone leaves, there's a generational gap ahead of us, I think, in training scientists. Some of the people who stayed also mentioned that it would have been really hard for them to leave the objects of their research, right? So maybe if you're a mathematician, you could probably, you know, grab your papers and leave. But if you're studying tree rings in Siberia, that's a little harder to do. But I felt that that was always secondary to concerns over, you know, supporting younger generations, supporting people who are just starting out in science. Yeah, I mean, it's a country's heritage in some ways like this dynasty of scientists training one generation after the next. And that was raised also in several conversations. Nobody is really ready to say, you know, 
we should just close it down. We should leave Russia and forget about it. People still think that it's important that a country as big as Russia, a nuclear power, actually has people who understand science, who understand how science works, who are able to do environmental monitoring, infectious disease monitoring, even if you're not concerned about the actual Russians understanding science and making the, the most of it, you still need something. I think that's that's a more fundamental reason, right? You don't want to just abandon the whole country to pseudoscience. And that also came up, by the way, because there's a demand for what's called sovereign science, the science that reflects Russian interests. There's also been a surge in dubious claims, basically. Everything that seems to be pro-Russia and anti-Western can get a boost. And in that sense, it's, it's even more important to have actual scientists who, you know, know that climate change doesn't go against Russia's interests. It's not a conspiracy theory against the government. Yeah, as you point out, access to the Arctic and what is happening there is really important for people who are trying to monitor climate change, and that's getting harder and harder. Yeah, and I think, especially in conversations, not just with Russian scientists, but also with Western scientists outside Russia, this often comes up as the reason not to abandon Russian science, not to cut off all ties. We can't just pretend that half of the Arctic that Russia controls does not exist. We need that data, we need that information, and we need to collaborate with Russians, right? Because you can't really just access the Arctic without Russian scientists. That's not really how it works. So I think when people discuss the sanctions against Russian science, how they should be strengthened or whether they should be dropped, one of the factors that certainly influences this conversation is how close they feel to these unique assets that Russia has. I mean, you can tell that physicists, maybe economists, who are not that concerned, I guess, with climate research, they're like, well, whatever, <laughs> we, we won't miss it, right? There's yeah. nothing to miss about Russian science. Whereas when you talk to climate researchers, like, yeah, maybe not. Maybe that's, we can't cut Russia out of it. Mm -hmm. The government is actually pushing particular collaborations, particular international partners for research now. How is that working out, being selective at that, like, government level for who researchers should be working with? That is the second part to the whole like sovereign science narrative that the Western science turned against us. But we have these great partners, China, India, Iran, countries outside the Western science space that are really eager to work with Russia. The Russian science funders, funding agencies have boosted the joint funding calls for these projects. But I'd say it's not that straightforward. It looks very, very neat on paper. But when you actually try to establish these collaborations, some of those countries don't really have enough shared interests with Russia, topics that they could work on. And for some of them, I mean, for China, there's a lot of declared interest. But if you look at the recent wave of prosecutions of Russian scientists for treason, many of those cases are actually linked to supposedly, you know, selling state secrets to China. I mean, to me, pushing more collaboration with China, actually, right. I could see this in a very different light with those prosecutions in mind. Yeah, it definitely would make people hesitant to try to collaborate if there's this risk for 
going on trial for treason. Of course, of course. So, you know, it's hard to make predictions now about what is going to happen because the conflict is still happening. The government is still repressing the speech of the scientists that stayed in the country. But did anybody that you talked to say, you know, I have a lot of hope or I think that we're going to see things degrade further? When I asked people what their outlook was for the next several years, most of them, I think, if not all of them, actually started with that really depends on when the war ends, right? Everyone is waiting for that, I'd say. But beyond that, beyond just wanting the war to end, well, there's actually a very pertinent Russian saying, on average, Russians live pretty well, worse than last year, but definitely better than next year. <laughs> so I think that was sort of the sentiment behind many answers, right? People do not expect anything to improve really soon. They don't expect any recovery from isolation to start until well after the war is over. That will take time. But also, again, depending on the field, people are really worried, especially in social sciences, that the destructive processes that mostly the Russian government is doing for social sciences, for humanities, again, it's not the sanctions that are doing the most of, of the damage. It's actually the government. And fundamentally, that's going to be harder to recover from without some drastic fundamental changes. And people are worried that best case scenario, we end up with a big diaspora that is hopefully going to return to Russia at some point and find colleagues who have stayed there and who actually survived and are still doing science. And we reunite the community again, I'd say. I think that's the optimistic vision. The longer this war goes on, obviously, the harder it is to actually hold and declare any, any sort of hope for this. So is this hard to write about? I mean, besides the fact that very few people were willing to talk from inside of Russia, you know, is it a hard story to do? It is. I think right now there's understandably very little appetite for context and nuance around all things Russia. Talking about Russian science and the troubles that Russian science is in is, can feel really inappropriate given what's happening in Ukraine and given the, the obvious links between Russian science and the military industrial complex and the Russian state. All of that, I think, is very clear to everyone I've, I've spoken to in this story, pretty much everyone. But I still thought it was important to add some nuance, some context to this narrative that Russia's just cut off and we don't really know what's going on there. I think we, we still do. And I'm grateful to people who actually agreed to talk to me under their names or anonymously. I think that was very important for me to make those, those voices heard as well. Thank you so much, Olga, for talking with me. Thank you, Sarah. Olga Dobrovidova is a science journalist based in France. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my next conversation with researcher Jacob Robinson about improving electronics that go inside the body. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. 
Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. You could think about the body as a series of nested machines, you know, at different scales. Cells as tiny machines inside the machines that are our tissues, that are organs, that make our hormones or move us around with inputs and outputs, chemical gradients, electrical power. Of course, it's way too complicated for humans to make on purpose. And our bodies, these machines, don't always work as expected. Sometimes we actually put real machines that are simpler but helpful inside our biological machines, our bodies. These are implants that help us stimulate or regulate or just report out what our body is doing so we can treat it better. These machines can have their own power or take advantage of some of the activity of our cells or muscles. Now we have Jacob Robinson. He and his colleagues wrote a review about the future of miniature bioelectronics this week in science. Hi, Jacob. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hey, Sarah. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. I first think about pacemakers when I hear about implanted electronics. What else is there out there now, you know, that's implanted in people's bodies or walking around with a little tiny device somewhere on them? Yeah, lots of things. So you may be familiar with continuous glucose monitors. Oh, yeah. Right. People with diabetes want to be able to track their insulin or blood sugar. That's one example. Cochlear implants is another. Yeah. So that helps with hearing and it basically is a sensor and a it stimulates something further down the line? Yeah, it stimulates the nerves in the inner ear and the cochlea for people who uh, can't hear. Very cool. There's lots of other examples. Cardiac loop recorders, things that can monitor your heart rate. There's basically an expansion of different types of devices that people are probably familiar with that we use to stimulate and record activity inside the body. Right. So there's kind of an array of targets, but there's also different modes they're operating and they could be stimulating, they could be taking data. What are some of the advantages to having these onboard medical devices? One of the, the real advantages to having these implantable medical devices is their ability to be much more specific in the way that they interact with the body than you can be with drugs. Right. For example, I didn't mention deep brain stimulation, but that deep brain stimulation is another type of device and that, that stimulates the region of the brain that's very specific, very difficult to target with the drug because drugs kind of go everywhere in your body. But with an electronic device, it can go directly to a target that could be a nerve for chronic pain. It could be a region of the brain in the case of Parkinson's disease that results in a tremor. Those targets we can interact with very precisely in a spatial targeting. We can also be very precise temporally or with time, you can turn them on and off as you need them throughout the day in ways that drugs are really difficult to regulate. Your review kind of goes over the various components of these devices and how they can be improved or what the barriers are to improvement. One of the things that you talk about the most is the energy source. When I think about pacemakers, I think about batteries. You have to actually replace the battery at a pacemaker after a certain period of time. Not ideal. Not ideal. You don't really want to do multiple invasions into the body. Yes. How else are they a limitation in this field? Like, why else are they a problem for implanted devices? It's not just the challenge of having to replace the batteries, which you obviously don't want, right? I don't want to swapping a, a surgically implanted device every few years. The other thing that batteries really limit is the size. So there's this trade off, right? It's like, I don't want to swap this battery out every two years. So I need a bigger battery. 
well, a bigger battery is a bigger implant. Right. And if I have that big implant, it can't necessarily be at the location that I want to stimulate or record. We can't fit an iPhone everywhere inside of our body. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so then you're like, okay, I got to put my iPhone, let's say in the chest, and then I have to have a wire going from that battery pack to my brain or to my heart or wherever it is I want to interact with. And so now you have like wires connecting this battery pack to someplace else. Yeah, you get more stuff in your body. You have more connections, places where things can fail. I know I keep using the phone as an example, but bear with me. You know, it is kind of this really good example of miniaturization, smaller screens to a certain extent, smaller batteries, more and more computing power in a smaller size. They're getting better and better at hiding in our pockets and being more and more powerful. How is that kind of miniaturization, particularly with batteries, how has that been translated into the implants that we're talking about? Some of the advantages that are making their way over are lower power electronics. So maybe you don't need as much energy from the battery and better batteries. So things that are smaller, but still have enough energy to operate your device for a longer period of time. There are maybe better or alternative ways to deliver power to these devices. And you go through these in a lot of detail in the review. And I really thought this was interesting. One is harvesting energy from the body in a number of different ways. Can you kind of walk us through some of those options? Yeah. And maybe taking a step back, the idea of, of having a battery in your implanted device is great. And we're trying to draw as much as we can from advances to make these batteries smaller, to last longer. But at some point, the battery is so small that the amount of energy that you have isn't going to last you for an entire day. Yeah. And at that point, it becomes kind of annoying to have to recharge something multiple times a day. Yes. For anybody who's ever had, <laughs> I don't know, a phone, it's true. Yes. Yeah. I don't want to like say, hold on, time out. I have to charge my phone three times a day. You don't want that for your implanted device either. So the, the focus of this review is to say, look, if I wanted to really push the limits and make something really tiny, that battery is not going to last me long enough. So I have to get energy from somewhere else. And maybe I could get energy from the body itself. We make energy. Yes. Yeah. We're expending energy through our movements. The heat of our body is energy that we can maybe harvest. And maybe we can use that energy instead of a battery and devices could be made extremely tiny. Yeah. I mean, we do see this in watches now. Like you can charge your watch by swinging your arm around. Isn't that right? Exactly. Kinematic energy can be harvested for some of these devices as well. So we looked at all the advances and some of these advances are materials advances. So if I could have a material that does a better job of harnessing that kinematic energy, then I could support more advanced functions. If that's a stimulation function or a sensing function, I could power that just with the energy from the body itself, thanks to advances in new materials. Right. So materials that get energy from flexing, like the flexing of your arms or the fine rapid movement that you have in the beating of a heart, that's a different type of material that we might use to harvest that energy. So these are all movements, but they're movements that are manifest in slightly different ways. And they're different materials that are better at capturing that energy from the body. How about chemical energy from the body? We have chemical gradients. We have basically little electric circuits of our own inside of our bodies. Yeah, exactly right. The acid in our gut can be used to power devices, particularly a device you might imagine swallowing, like a smart pill. There's a lot of these opportunities for us to use the chemicals in our bodies as kind of like their own battery for a device that has no batteries at all. What if you can't get all the power you need from this a small battery or from harvesting? 
Can we talk about uh, this process of beaming energy into the body wirelessly? Ideally, I want to just put something in my body, no batteries, and it's going to make me better because it's going to stimulate and record. I never have to recharge it again because it's getting all the energy it needs for my body. The problem with that idea is that when we looked at the literature to see how much energy we're able to harvest, it doesn't support all of the functions that I want to do. It's really hard to get enough energy, even for cardiac pacing, the deep brain stimulation applications. If I wanted to measure the oxygen in, in one's blood, there are no examples in the literature that we could find where we're able to harvest that much energy from the body itself. So the math doesn't work out. There's not enough juice from the materials that we have to harvest energy, at least not yet. The idea is then to just send the power directly, no battery needed, just get it into the body as much as you need, right? Yes. I want to beam it in. And that way I don't have to have a battery inside. That's great. Safer. Size becomes less of an issue. Oh yeah. Make it super tiny and ideally never have to replace it because there's no battery that runs out. Okay. So the concern here, which you raised in your review is beaming energy into the body could cook something, could cook the tissue, like heat it up uncomfortably or do damage. So, you know, how do you get around that problem if you want to move energy into the body without harming it? This is where we can look to materials yet again. So we can find materials that are more efficient at capturing that energy. And then we don't have to turn up that energy beam so high. The other thing we can do is we can find materials that absorb different types of energy. So magnetic fields are a really good example of this. In a magnetic field, you can go to an MRI machine and you get magnetic fields to go through your body. It's very safe. And we're discovering that there are materials that can efficiently harvest energy from those magnetic fields. Ultrasound is another example, right? We use ultrasound for diagnostics. There's a new class of devices that are using ultrasound to capture energy from those ultrasound waves. One last consideration for these devices, we also need to talk about how to get data into them and out of them. So we don't want to have big hard drives in there. We don't want to have to plug people into things. How are we going to link these things so that we can get that sensor information or give the device commands? Yeah, and that was the last piece that we looked at. We have similar considerations, right? If I want to beam energy in the body, it has to be safe. I also want to be able to send data using that same form of energy. At the same time, I want to be able to get data back. But one thing we are always trying to fight against is the energy that's being consumed by that device. If I want to make it tiny, I want to be able to transmit data without consuming a lot of energy for my implant. And what we've found in the literature that we describe in this review is that there's a variety of ways to use materials again. And these materials reflect energy back. It's called backscatter. And if I can get materials that reflect back ultrasound, reflect back magnetic fields, reflect back electromagnetic waves, then I can communicate efficiently with these implants without using up a lot of energy on the implanted device itself. So you supply the energy when you're going to get the messages. Yeah. The way that I think about a lot of these backscatter communication standards are kind of like a tuning fork. If I want to get information from someone who's holding a tuning fork, I just need a way to bang on it. So if I have a hammer, I can bang on that tuning fork and I can listen to the way that that tuning fork rings down the tone. And me holding that tuning fork, I can put my finger on it to keep it from ringing down, or I can leave my finger off and let it ring down for a long period of time. And so as someone holding the tuning fork, I can expend very, very little energy just putting my finger on or off that tuning fork. And the person holding the hammer, they're using all that energy to bang on that fork. <laughs> and that's what we're trying to do here. That external device 
that's providing the power is also banging on that tuning fork. So we don't have to have any energy or very little energy consumed on that device in order to transmit data back. That's something that's been really powerful to open up these miniature devices that are smart and talk to those external devices. Putting this all together, you kind of have explored the limitations of what we have now and some future directions for improvements and the different components of biomedical devices like this. Looking way out into the future, things are improved, they're refined. What kinds of applications do you see in the future for bioelectronics? Yeah, I love to think about where we're heading with this. The world I'd like to imagine is one where there's a mesh network inside the body, kind of like you know, at home, I have my wireless network and I can walk any place in my house and I can connect to the internet. In the body, I think we have that similar type of opportunity where we can have tiny devices that can measure blood oxygenation, blood pressure, heart rate, glucose, neural activity. All of this can be connected into a system that can provide therapy in ways that adapt to your needs. For example, you know, if you're seated, your blood pressure doesn't need to be as high as maybe when you're standing. And so we can regulate the heart, we can regulate blood vessels relative to your needs and adapt with you as you go throughout your day. You're collecting all the, the baseline data and then using that to decide when assists are necessary. We think of it as like a cruise control, but for your physiological processes, it adapts, you know, as you're going throughout the day, if I need more stimulation, it automatically can increase that level of therapeutic stimulation or decrease that level of therapeutic stimulation without even having to think about it. Thank you so much, Jacob. Well, thank you, Sarah. It's a real pleasure to chat with you. Jacob Robinson is a professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Rice University. You can find a link to the review we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on the podcasting apps, search for Science Magazine. Or you can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, Megan Cantwell, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.